you need righteousness. So, so let me make sure you're, you're with me. What is the one thing that you need to have access to this God who made you? What do you need? Do you got it? Tell me a verse that tells you that, just real quick. All of sin and come short of the glory of God. Also, Romans 3, 10 through 18. There is no one, I mean, this, get, this doesn't get more clear than this. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And the Romans 3.23 passage, we say, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Well, what is the glory of God? If you look at that context, it's his holy and righteous perfection. No one can make it. You can be a good person and not be righteous. right? Because righteousness, the definition I've given you many, many times, because it opened up my eyes when I heard a pastor say it years and years ago, the definition of righteousness is you fulfill all of your obligations to God. All of your obligations to God. It's like men, you, you have a list. You know, We're having a party at, at our house uh, this weekend, and so we have a list of things I, I want to get done, and I didn't fulfill the whole list. I didn't fulfill the whole list. I didn't do everything. A oh, big deal. right? I'll do it another time. But God has given us a set of obligations. right? Be without sin. And all these different commands that are throughout the Scripture, be like me, be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. Be holy as I am holy. No one can meet that standard. Well, wait a minute. If I need that for access to God and no one has it, then we have a big problem, right? A big problem. I love to share the gospel in that way. I love to say, what do you think? You know, people think of a relationship with God primarily as heaven. That's how unbelievers think of a relationship with God. Well, it's heaven because I want that, but I don't necessarily want God now. And we even think, when I say what is eternal life, we, we probably would first define it as, well, it's living forever in heaven. But it's not. Eternal life is having an awareness, a spiritual life that God grants you now. You have eternal life now. You're not waiting to get it. You have it because God gave it to you now if you have exercised that faith. But most people like to think of God, well, God is, God is heaven and I want heaven. So go, so go with that. Well, what do you have to do to get to heaven? Well, be a good person. No, you have to have righteousness. The ticket, which there will not be one, the ticket must say righteousness on it, and you don't, you don't have it. So, question two, if I need this righteousness, how do I become aware that I even need it? <laughs> Isn't that an amazing question? Okay, so if what the world needs is righteousness, how do we become aware that we even need it? Like if I went into Meyer today and got the hold of the loudspeaker, right, and said, Hey, everybody, we're having a survey. Uh, what do you need to have access to God? And, and a small portion would answer righteousness, even though that's the right answer. How do they become aware of that need? Now, I'm not just talking about how they become aware of it in their heads. It's how do they become aware of it in a spiritual sense. It's not like, oh, they need to read it or hear it you know, to understand. No, how, what I mean is how do, you become, how do you become gripped by the truth that righteousness is needed? Okay? How do you come? To, I've said this over and over before. That's why I'm putting it all together. You come to that need through the Word and the Spirit. The Word brings the content. The Holy Spirit brings another C word, conviction. The Word gives you the information, and the Holy Spirit gives you the illumination. Okay? You need both. So our job is to share the content, and the Holy Spirit's job is to do the conviction. And all of you who are Christians had that moment where the Word and the Spirit linked up in your soul, and you became aware of, I need righteousness. It's not, it's not what I can do. It's, 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 I need righteousness from God. And that's how you became aware of it. Now, how do you, question three, how do you get it? How do you get it? It's another two-sided answer. 
You get it through faith and repentance. Faith in Christ alone and repentance of your sin. And that must never be confused. You need righteousness. You become aware of it through the Word, the content, and the Holy Spirit, the conviction. You must respond in faith and repentance. There is no other way. Jesus provides that. And because of that justification, what this really means is we no longer have to pay the penalty for our sin and God declares us to be righteous. And, and this is a trite definition. It's just that justification is just as if I never sinned, but that's not right. Don't, don't do that. Don't fall into those trite definitions. It's not just as if you never sinned. It's that you are perfectly righteous. It, it's not just that you've never sinned. It's that you've also done everything right. Because Christ has done it for you. Most people are trying to build a track record. They're trying to build a track record. A list of achievements that when presented to God would somehow impress Him. The scroll goes out. There's a long list of things. It's a track record. You need to tear your record up and rely on the record of Christ alone who fulfilled all righteousness and did what we could not do so He could die on our behalf so that justification could be granted to us. So then the main question becomes, how does this happen? And this is what the Reformers rediscovered. One of Luther's favorite verses, Romans 1.17, the just shall live by faith. Well, today we come to Christ alone. And we say this, justification by Christ alone means this, that Jesus alone has done the necessary work of salvation so fully and so completely so that no merit of the part of man, no work of ours performed either here or later in purgatory will somehow complete or add to his work. That's what the doctrine of purgatory is. You go there and stay for a while until you work off your sins, and, and then you'll be allowed to enter into heaven. That's what justification by Christ alone means. He did it all, and nothing needs to be added. We do not need another prophet to come tell us about God. We do not need another priest as a go-between before God. And we need no other king to reign over us but Christ. He perfectly and completely fulfills all of those roles. And this goes against our cultural thinking. Last week we introduced the whole series by talking about relativism, materialism, and, and humanism, and secularism, and all the rest. And they will say things like, well, God helps those who help themselves. Or man is basically good by nature. Listen, folks, we saw the, the worst of man in the shooting uh, list last weekend. And don't you just get tired of the news reports that dance around every issue instead of just saying, this is because of sin. You, know, you could give me 30 seconds on the news. You could say, this is because of sin. What I loved was hearing one reporter say, and of course, we did see some good people lining up to give blood, right? And all these other things. And so a newscaster says, I like to believe that man is basically good rather than basically evil. And everybody says, oh, yes, oh, that's so true. No, it's not. Except for by the grace of God, there go we doing those same types of things. And it's only the common grace of God that prevents these types of things from happening all the time. Understand that we live in a humanistic model that is saturating this entire world. It's all about self-esteem, success, positive thinking, and man's goodness instead of sin, judgment, wrath, and hell. Without Christ, there is no Christianity. Isn't it fascinating that we have this name Christian and people will call themselves Christian without even giving thought to the name of the person by which that word is derived. 
They deny the very character and work of that person by which they call themselves by that name. You should keep these three very important verses in mind as you think about Christ alone. I like to have references memorized so you can quickly grab them. Where would you go in the Scriptures to specifically state that Christ is the only way to be right with God? Where would you go? Go to these places. John 14.6 I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Go to our verse that we're in right now, Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then go to 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Go to those three places. Keep those locked away. Keep those written down. Because in our culture, the pervasive attitude is our work, our merit, will maybe, maybe, um, maybe not... Uh, perform our salvation, but it will definitely add to it. It will definitely support what Christ has done. Uh, can you imagine the monster that the Father is by killing Christ when we still had more to do? Right? The Father would be a monster for doing that. So looking at the Acts 4 passage, we just kind of introduced things here, but looking at the Acts 4 passage, I want to pull out two principles, and, and we're preaching in a little different way. We're not going word by word ex in, in a full expository message, but I want to pour... Uh, pull two principles out of this passage uh, to help our thinking and to convince and confirm in our minds this idea of Christ alone. First, we already read the passage for our scripture reading, and just to remind you the context that Peter and John have healed the lame man who was sitting at the temple gate, and then uh, they faced uh, trouble for that. They were brought before the Sanhedrin, and they were demanded to not speak in the name of Christ. And this is where Jesus, Peter brings it to a conclusion in verse 12 and says, We're going to keep doing this because there's salvation in nobody else. Okay? So the two truths I want to pull out. Truth number one, Christ alone. Okay, this idea of Christ alone. It stirs up unbelievers. And that, that's, a, that's a gentle way of putting it. It angers them. I use, the word, I use an S word because the second word is going to start with S too. But it stirs up unbelievers. It just enrages them. The ESV here says they were greatly annoyed in verse number one or two. There are a lot of people here to, in the world today that are greatly annoyed on the account of Christ. The message of Christ alone eats people alive. It enrages them. When we proclaim a gospel that says Christ alone, we become the intolerant, divisive hate mongers that all of society complains about. Be inclusive. And we're challenged just as Peter and John were in verse 3 when they were arrested and all the way down to verse 18 when they were demanded not to preach this message anymore. The message that we preach, I just want to prepare you for this. Christ alone is a message that is primarily rejected by society. Spiritual leaders are revered in our society simply because they do not say this. You think about the spiritual leaders in America who are held up by our culture. They are held up primarily because they will not say this. They will not say Christ alone. Any preacher, any spiritual leader who will say, hey, it's Christ alone who saves, they are not revered. They are relegated to the, to the position of, as I said, a divisive, hateful person. You must understand that. I mean, could you imagine, could you imagine Peter on Good Morning America? Right? 
Uh, Peter, uh, we're, we're going to bring in Apostle Peter now to give us some uh, insight onto this mass shooting. Peter, why do you think this happened? What can we do to stop this? And Peter would probably be pointing at the screen and saying, just like he did here, it's because you denied Jesus Christ and you delivered him up to be crucified. God has raised him up and exalted him, but you rejected him like your fathers have in the past. <laughs> All of a sudden, it would go to static. Feed would be erased, right? So they bring on these wishy-washy people. Oh, God. Listen to this. This is... This is I, I transcribed the quotes. Do you believe, question, do you believe, this is from a spiritual guru, do you, the question from the news person, do you believe Jesus is the only way? Answer, only God can look at someone's heart. It's not my business to decide this one is going or this one isn't. I think it's wrong to say you're not going just because it's not exactly my way. Gets better. Well, don't you believe your way? with all of my heart, then someone who doesn't believe your way is wrong. I don't look at it that way. I would present my way, but I'm going to let God be the judge of that. Voice trails off. I just don't know. I just don't know. What about atheists? The question is asked. I'm going to let God be the judge of who goes to heaven and hell. He already has done that. He already has done that. Read 1 Timothy 2.5. Read John 14.6. Read Acts 4.12. He already has made that decision. How pathetic that a spiritual leader says, I don't know, I don't But he is revered because he won't say this. Look at all the people who have gathered together against Peter and John and the, and the vast uh, variety of their backgrounds. You have the priests, verse 1. Captain of the temple, verse 1. Sadducees. These guys aren't, they don't get together a lot. Then you have the high priest family uh, down in verse uh, 6. You have rulers, elders, scribes. You have Annas, Caiaphas, John, Alexander. You have all these people who have gathered together. And they are greatly annoyed. The priest is referring to the group of Levites living in Israel. Probably the high priest is included, the captain of the guard. The Sadducees are people who didn't believe in the resurrection. This is why they're greatly annoyed because they're proclaiming Jesus is resurrected from the dead. They didn't believe there was any afterlife. Uh, you have the police force led by the captain there, uh, the categories of the rulers, these various people of authority, the older men, our elders, uh, the scribes, etc. All these people making up the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews, they're all upset. Let me say that when I say Christ, stirs, Christ alone stirs people up, nothing, you, know, you want to talk about uniting people, nothing unites people more than going against this message. Nothing unites people more than going against this message. So you watch the news and you see a faithful Bible believer who proclaims Christ alone. Then you see a Jew, Muslim, New Age person, and atheist all down the line. Okay? Do the Jew, Muslim, uh, the rabbi is there, uh, the atheist, the New Age person, do any of those agree on the way to be right with God? Absolutely not. But when the Bible person says, hey, it's Christ alone, you know what happens to those five? They lock arms against him. We may not agree with each other, but we hate that. Right? We hate that. And that message of Christ alone always will garner that response until the Word and the Spirit come together and convince otherwise. They all gang up, just as they did here with Peter and John, even though they're uneducated, common men. Isn't it funny, this exclusive claim is the only thing that pushes people away. 
this idea of relativism, relativism or pragmatism, you will find no argument. Well, it works for me. I had to change the thermostat in my Chevy Cruze this week. You know how many ways there are to do that? One. Well, what if we put the thermostat? I don't like the thermostat there. I've I never liked it there. I kind of want it to be in the car with me. You know, well, that's what works for me. <laughs> you know, or if you're baking a cake, you know, I, I really like a sugary cake more. There's one way to do those things right. And, and, it, and everybody's like, huh? Can you imagine watching the Food Network show and the person's baking a cake and saying, you know, I know people don't normally do this, but it works for me. I just take the whole bag of sugar and pour it right in. And it just, it just always has worked for me. And, and people would be like, but how come it doesn't bother them when it comes to the, the hope and rest of their soul? <laughs> they don't say, well, you know, whatever works. It makes me feel right. It's astonishing. But this message of Christ alone, this is, this is, this is Satan's uh, target because he recognizes that once people heed and hear this message, uh, the potential exists that they might put their faith and trust in Christ. Notice Paul saying about the Galatians 1.8, the cursing of another gospel. Look at, let, let, me, let me show you uh, one thing here in Acts 4.12 when he says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven. I'm about to say this in a minute. I'll say it now. Name for me there equals power. So it says there is no other power. There is no other capability. There is no other, there is no other um, you could say it, energy, what, whatever you want. There's no other way. There's no other capability, effective means of salvation than Christ alone. So that's our second point. Christ alone stirs up unbelievers, and it also saves unbelievers. And by, by saving, I mean it is powerful and effective. It is the only thing that is sufficient. He healed the lameness of the man through the power and name. Name equals power. And then I think when he uses in Acts 4.12, name still equals power. Okay. Notice that we need salvation. Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation. It doesn't say we need advice, counsel, a shot in the arm. We need complete and total deliverance from our sin. So may I suggest these two thoughts about Christ uh, alone saving us. And I'm, I'm stuck on the letter S this week, and that's okay. First of all, Christ satisfied God's demands. Christ satisfied God's demands. The idea is that there is a human problem, sin. And this is why many reject the solution, because they've never seen the problem. God has set a standard for which we fall short, and this is why we are disconnected. In fact, Galatians 3.10, which is an even stronger verse about the law, says those who try to earn their salvation through the law are cursed. Trying to earn salvation through works is a curse. So we, dis we start our discussion with the nature of God. He is pure and perfect and unapproachable by sinful man. And we could never satisfy those demands. So we need someone to approach him on our behalf. But it can't be someone from this world because if, it's from this, if they're from this world, they have failed as well. But it has to be someone like us too. Modern people have such a high view of themselves that they simply think by they can somehow attain to God themselves. Christ himself came and lived a perfect life fulfilling all righteousness. And we love how the people who are closest to him observe this about him. People like John and Peter writing years after his death that in him there was no guile and no deceit was found in his mouth. And First John, the, the Apostle John saying, in him there was, there was no sin. He is the light. He's perfectly pure. Hebrews 4.15, he was tempted in every way yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26 says, he is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. 
2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. His perfect life satisfied the demands of God completely and fully. How foolish it is for us to think that we now some, somehow add to that with our good works, right? Christ did everything perfectly and completely, but now we need you to kind of do a little bit too. Makes no sense. Even logically, it makes no sense. And biblically, it's a complete error. Second, not only did Christ satisfy God's demands, but his sacrifice was acceptable. His death was the acceptable payment for our sin because he was the perfect lamb of God. Remember, as Peter stated, there is no other power except the death of Christ that provides salvation. Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God because if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If you could earn it, why did Christ die? Ask your unbelieving friends that question. When you, when you talk to them about the gospel, say, how do you think you're yourself? Well, just trying to be good. Just trying to be a good person. Trying to do my best. Well, if that's the case, then why did Jesus die? I, I hope that it would leave them short saying, yeah, I don't, I don't know. That, that's the great question to ask them. How do we know that his sacrifice was accepted? Well, we know because God raised him from the dead and brought him back to life. See Acts 4.11. We've still got our Bibles open there. We haven't been turning around at all, right? We're in Acts 4.11. Uh, I'll let go back to verse 10. Here's Peter. Let it be known to you and all the people of Israel that by the name or power of Christ, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. He's referring back to Psalm 118 when Jesus was prophesied, this, well, the cornerstone was prophesied that he would come and Peter's saying, here he is, but you rejected him. There is no other power but him. 1 John 2.2 gives this wonderful promise. And Jesus, he, it says he, talking about Jesus, is the propitiation for our sin, a long Bible word that means to be satisfied. His wrath was quenched. He is the propitiation for our sin and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. The Bible teaches us that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was a satisfying sacrifice to God the Father. Most people today do not recognize that Christ's death is the only sacrifice for sin that will be acceptable. There's no other sacrifice. Can you imagine? So, here, so here's the different options we have for sacrifice. We have Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins after living a perfect life. And here we have my good works. And here we have a couple of checks I wrote to the church. And here we have my baptism. And here we have my heritage. And here we have my ceremony. And here we have my denomination. Stupid. All of this is worthless, Isaiah 64, 6 says. When the Bible says that Christ was this satisfying or propitiation sacrifice for our sins, it means that He paid the penalty of judgment that we no longer have to pay. He took what God required of us. <laughs> I wish you'd say amen to that, right? He took what God required of us. He paid the penalty, the just, 1 Peter 3.18, the just one for the unjust one. So we could escape the penalty and judgment for our own sins. The Bible actually says in Isaiah 53, and some people cringe at this, that it pleased the Father to bruise him when his soul became an offering for sin. That's Isaiah 53, verse 10. Only Christ can pay the sinner's debt. Only Christ can satisfy the demands of God's justice. Only Christ can set the sinner free. 
Only Christ can pay the necessary ransom, 1 Timothy 2.6, that will satisfy God. Only Christ can set us free from hell's judgment. Only Christ can die in our place. Only Christ can bear the penalty for our sin. Only Christ can satisfy a holy and righteous judge. Only Christ can set us free. Only Christ can have us accepted in God's presence forever. It is only Christ. One of the old hymns says, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Sometimes I sit in stuff. In the last couple of weeks, I have two nice pair of pants that got a big black stain on it. I always go to Leah, will this come out? Will this come out? Will this come out? Why are sinners not going to Christ and saying, please take this out? They're going to all types of other sources and solutions to try to rid themselves of the stain that sin puts on them, and all of them fail. It is only Christ alone. We don't scrub and wash our stain away with good works or baptism or something else. Christ alone can remove it. Maybe you're deceived and you think you're trusting in Christ alone, but you never really have done that. And I love this thought from Martin Lloyd-Jones, which I finish with. Martin Lloyd-Jones doesn't say it this way, but I kind of, Jesus don't need any help. Jesus doesn't need any help. He doesn't need Mary. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need a priesthood. He doesn't need any help. He is the full and sufficient and complete Redeemer alone. And to add anything else to that provision is to blaspheme God. It is Christ alone. Our Father, we are so grateful today that this message is one that has been